Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to many things, and you have not left us without an example and a brother, uh, a good, kind, older brother, Lord, to show us those things and teach us those things. So, Lord, uh, today you call us to suffer well through your word, and God, may we just um, enroll ourselves in the school of suffering under Christ, Lord, and learn learn to carry his burden and to, as Paul said, bear his marks on our body, Father. Lord, would we receive this calling with gladness, but sorrowful gladness, Lord, not naively, but not spitefully either. And so, God, help your people through your word today to do this. Um, and help us live this out so that we can display our great God, the great sufferer, to the world around us. So we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name and for the sake of his fame among the nations. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, we have been in our study of First Peter, and it's been a really wonderful study, and one of the words that's been used to describe the book of First Peter so far has been dense, and not dense like dumb or stupid, but dense like it, it's very packed full of stuff, and since it's really packed full of stuff, we have to work through it very, very slowly. Even this week in my sermon prep, I found myself having to cut out verses that I planned to preach on, uh, but just there was too much there, and I couldn't. We've also been a little bit spotty in our time in First Peter uh, because of Christmas and because of Dave Brunn sharing the word with us last week. And so I'd like to just give us a recap on where we've been so far in First Peter and where we're going to land today. So, so far in First Peter, we've seen that we're exiles in the world, and this world doesn't feel quite like home, and it's not supposed to feel quite like home. And, and we live like that in light of this amazing promise of a new world, of a glorious inheritance where we'll have a new earth, and that comes through Jesus and his resurrection. And we've seen that we'll suffer trials, but we have hope in front of us, and that hope is that inheritance that we'll receive from Jesus, and that pulls us through. And, and through these trials, we're called to be holy even as God is holy. We're called to put away passions and desires and lusts, even if these lusts and these desires and these passions are tightly ingrained into who we are through our inheritance, or through our ancestry, sorry. Because our true family on earth, our true family is is the family of God, those who've been born again by the word of God. That's our real family. And as new people, we have a new identity as as priests and a new nation that God is making up to live in this world. And, And all of that is so that we can make God look good. All of that is so that we can, with our mouths and with our lives, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And now Peter's making it really practical what that looks like. And so Peter's looking at three places where it's going to be challenging to live out this identity. So the first place where it's going to be challenging to live under uh, in that identity, we looked at last time, a couple weeks ago in Chris Preach, we, look under, we looked at living under authority. This week, we're going to look at living under your master, slaves living under their masters, and in a couple weeks, we're going to look at uh, marriage. So there's three ways that it's going to be tough to live out this calling as exiles, and today we find ourselves living uh, as exiles who are called to submit to their masters. And so, Peter sees this identity uh, and this promised new world as a reason to embrace the fact that we're exiles who aren't home yet. And while we are here, we submit to authorities, we submit to our masters, we're going to see we submit to our spouses. Uh, While we're here, we do that because God's our real authority in doing that. We can do that because we trust that, that the true master, the true boss, the true one over us is God. So we can submit while we're here. 
And this week, like I said, 18 to verses 23, Peter shows Christian servants or slaves. The word there is is the same word. It, It gets into household servants, but if I explained to you what that was, you'd hear it as slaves. It's practically, for all intents and purposes, slaves. Peter's explaining to slaves how they should live as exiles and how they should relate to their masters. In the first century, people were getting saved, and some of them were slaves because there were a lot of slaves in the ancient world. Some of them were slave masters, uh, but right now Peter is addressing slaves. So, so how, as an exile, do you deal with your slave master? In the first century, anyway, how are we supposed to, or how were they supposed to at the time, anyway? What's it look like them? Uh, what's it look like for them to live holy as God is holy under their masters? And before we get into that, uh, before we get into the text, I just want to say a brief word on slavery. And I, I was struggling with how much to say here, or if I should say anything at all. Uh, but I don't want the fact that we're dealing with such a sensitive subject. I don't want the fact that we're dealing with slavery uh, that is, is abhorrent and evil and seems that way to us. I don't want that to distract us as we walk through the text. So, so I decided on putting a few words about slavery in front of this so that we can just be free after saying those things to walk through the text with these things in mind. So three things, three short truths about slavery before we get into a text addressing slaves. One, the Bible is not pro-slavery. The Bible is not pro-slavery. No matter how many videos you see on YouTube or TikTok or Facebook or on the Joe Rogan podcast of people saying, yeah, but but there's slavery in the Bible. It endorses slavery. The Bible is not pro-slavery. If a careful read of the Mosaic Law shows that God cares for human life, you cannot own people. God made provisions for the servants in that time, and what people call slavery in the Bible is not comparable to the slavery of the Roman first century. It's not comparable to, to the antebellum self. So, so slavery is not supported by the Bible, first truth. Two, slavery ended because of the gospel. Slavery ended wherever it's ended in history. It's ended because of the gospel, uh, because... The gospel breaks those. The gospel breaks those chains. I mean, it's, okay, it's January, so I'm sure some of us still remember Christmas because it's only January. And during Christmas, we sing a song where we sing, "Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother." The gospel does that. Everybody being level at the foot of the cross does that. And so slavery was eventually destined to crumble before the gospel. And so when you see guys like William Wilberforce helping to end slavery, they were in a time in history where where God graciously saw it fit to allow them to do that because the gospel became prominent. So that's second truth. Slavery ended because of the gospel. And that might make you think, then why is Peter calling slaves or servants who live under the gospel, who are supposed to live gospel lives, Why is Peter calling them to submit to their masters? And so that gives us our third truth. For people in Peter's day, rebellion and uprising against slavery, reform, it would have been disobedient because God, through Peter, is telling us to live as exiles. And at that time, they lived in a a majority pagan world. If they led a big rebellion... If they started a big uprising, it would be undermining and flipping over such, such a tightly ingrained and such a huge part of that world that they would have been seen as loud, disobedient evildoers, a, a small cult to be wiped out, and they probably would have been wiped off the face of the planet. And so in Peter's time, the best way to understand their calling is exiles. The best way to live out the life of an exile was to submit and to show Jesus' love and suffering 
to their slave masters, and that planted seeds for the eventual end of slavery. So that's three short points on slavery before we get in. Keep those in mind, uh, and I hope that that frees us to just walk through the text and not have you be distracted by that. Uh, Going forward, you'll see in your outline three points. One, the calling. We're going to look at uh, what those servants were called to do and how that's actually our calling as well and how that broadens out past past a master-servant relationship. Two, we're going to look at the example, the example that we have in Jesus. And then three, we're going to take a few moments to, in a few ways, apply these truths to our lives. So first, the calling. If you haven't opened your Bible yet, I'd invite you to open it to 1 Peter 2.18, the calling. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect or with all fear, some translations rightly say. To be subject means to submit. So, so like last time, Peter's calling us to submit his exiles in fear to the masters. And that begs the question, yeah, but Peter... You don't know how bad my slave master is. But Peter, you don't know what my master does to me. You don't know what he's like. And that's a fair point. But on the other hand, something we should consider, how often do we see a hard command in the Bible? How often do we see the Bible just plainly say something and our first response is, yeah, but, yeah, but, but they, but they, but they, right? Parents, you've got kids, you know the immediate when you're giving them trouble for something they've done that they shouldn't have done, but they, and they point at their siblings. And I don't know that because Evelyn talks yet. I know that because I was a kid and I always, but they, but they, and we always have that attitude or, or often we have that attitude when looking at clear commands in the word of God and it just it boils up inside of us like a fire. But, but, and Peter just quenches that fire with these words, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There were probably some very kind slave masters in the first century. In, in fact, there certainly were. Uh, that might sound weird, but it was such a common practice that there were so many of them that you were destined to find some kind ones. So Peter says, submit to those kind ones. And there were also certainly mean and harsh and cruel taskmasters and slave masters in the first century. And so Peter's saying, not just submit to to the kind ones, but also to the unjust. Doesn't matter what they did, this is your calling. Submission in fear and respect. Like I said, the word respect, if you have an ESV like we've got, uh, could be translated fear. Now, question, in the fear of who? Who is this fear meant for? Well, I don't think Peter is saying submit out of fear to your master. He could be saying that, but I don't think he's saying that. Remember in verse 13 earlier, Peter called us to submit to institutions, the ones he's going through now, for the Lord's sake. And that was just a general umbrella or a general bracket around these three situations he's looking at. So you could justly say, you could rightfully say in the text, Peter's saying submit to your uh, masters for the Lord's sake. So when they submit to their masters, it's for the Lord's sake. Government, masters, marriage, it's all for the Lord's sake. So this calling is under the banner of do it for God. And so they're not called to submit for their master's sake so that their master can get rich off their work, so that their master can get their jollies out of abusing them. They're called to submit for the sake of the Lord. And this is supported by the next verse in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Yes, they'll endure sorrow. Yes, they will suffer unjustly. 
But what are they mindful of while they're suffering? Are they mindful of, I better submit or else I'm mindful of the fear I have of what my master's going to do to me if I don't? Is that what they're mindful of? No. When mindful of God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So, servants submit, whether your master is kind or harsh, even if you endure sorrow, even if you're suffering unjustly, even if it's not fair, because God said so, and because he's your real master, and because you live in the fear of him. You might be noticing some overlap from the last time when we looked at God and government. And so our submission as exiles comes from submission to our true king, King Jesus, in hope of a better country, the new Jerusalem. We don't have to get our way here. We don't have to get our say here because we've got a better inheritance coming towards us. And this idea of God being the real boss here, it's important for understanding verse 20. So I'll read verse 20 and I'll explain why. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure... So that's not good. Don't sing your way into a beating. Don't sing your way into suffering. But if you do good, so that phrase right there, do good, that's important. If you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So don't sing your way into suffering. There's no glory there. There's no credit there. You're not going to get a reward for that here or on the new earth. Don't sing your way into suffering. But more importantly, we are to suffer for doing good. Now, why would a servant suffer at the hands of their master for doing good? Aren't they just being a good, submissive servant? I mean, aren't they being a good servant? So why would their masters beat them for that? Why would their masters be harsh with them and punish them for that? Well, obviously, their master doesn't think what they did is good. That's why he's punishing them. Obviously, their master isn't too impressed with what they did. So who does think that what they did is good? Who does decide that they did was good, and so they're suffering for that righteousness? God. If you do good according to God, and your master doesn't think it's very good, and he punishes you for it, and you suffer unjustly, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this is why I said it's important to to see that God is the ultimate master here, because a servant is called to submit in everything to their master, except for when they absolutely can't because they have a higher master, King Jesus, and to submit to him, they have to disobey their master. When, when their master's commands run up against God's commands. Maybe their master uh, told them to abuse a fellow servant, and they didn't, because Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Maybe their master told them not to share food with a fellow servant, and they did, because Jesus said, if you see somebody hungry, feed them. So for doing good according to God, uh, they're going to be punished. The only reason a servant would suffer for doing good is if that good was good to God and not the master. So again, God's the ultimate master. But we need to note here that the servant is only supposed to disobey when they have to in order to obey God. Everywhere else, God himself tells them to submit. So they're not self-seeking. They're not disobeying out of spite or anger or resentment to their master. They're not trying to get him back. They're not getting their jollies out of disobeying. They're not playing hero. They are to understand their spot as exiles and in submission to God, obey everywhere where they can except for when they absolutely can't because Jesus said so. And when they can't obey their earthly masters because they must obey King Jesus, they may be beaten. Uh, They may be suffering unjustly. It's not fair. When they suffer this way, We wonder how should they respond. So we know how they get themselves into the harsh treatment. 
Uh, sometimes that's just obeying God. How do they respond once they've received unjust, not fair, harsh treatment? You can't persecute me. You, you can't abuse me. You can't violate my rights like that. I mean, do you have any idea who my father is? You don't know who you're talking. No, no, God forbid. Peter doesn't tell us to do that. So how does Peter say to respond? Well, look at verse 19 and 20 again. Back to verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Keep obeying your master when you can. Keep returning good for evil. Press on. Endure. And that's obviously, at least it was for them, hard. That's really hard. We can't even imagine living as a slave in the first century. And they're called to just submit and endure and to keep obeying. And Peter knows that that's hard. So he doesn't just slap them upside the head with that command. He gives them some, some pastoral counsel in that. And he very kindly, like a good pastor, gives them a reason to do this, a motivation to do this, so they're not just left out there with nothing. So point 2A in your outline. Peter assures these servants in 19 to 20, if you do this, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Doesn't that sound strange to, to align suffering with grace? And that's a possible read here that it's grace from God to get the suffering. Another possible read is that you're showing God's grace by enduring the suffering. Uh, but what I found in my, summer, uh, in my uh, study, sorry, the word for a gracious thing here, the word for gracious is the same word in the original language that Jesus uses in Matthew 6. When he says your father will see you in secret, when you give, when you pray, when you fast in secret, your father will see those things and reward you for it. Reward, gracious, they're the same word. And so that inclines me to think that Peter, drawing on the words of Jesus, who spent time with Jesus, who heard the words, if you do this in secret, your father will see and reward you. I think Peter's drawing on that. And so maybe a better way that we could say this is, when you suffer for doing good and endure, this is a thing that will be rewarded in God's sight. Peter assures them that they're suffering. It's not for nothing. They're not suffering for nothing. And you can tell, like I said, Peter spent time with Jesus. Your Father in heaven who sees will reward you. If you endure, your Father in heaven who sees. If you don't get the last word, if you don't lash back, if you don't vindicate yourself, if you don't let that boil up out of you and have its way, your Father will see that. Your slave master won't appreciate it. No one else will see it, but your Father will see it, and he'll reward you. So live in submission as often as you can. Disobey when you must. Not when you're fed up with your master. Not when you want to show him up. But when you must suffer for it, endure. And your Father in heaven who sees will reward you. And that's their calling. And the first part of verse 21 says, For to this you have been called. That's why I said this is their calling. That's why the section in your outline is labeled calling. To this you have been called. Their suffering, while doing right, not while doing evil, their suffering connected to their righteousness is their calling. It's not an accident. It's, it's, it's not a sorry evil that's in the way that God has to endure. They're called to it. That's their purpose. That's, that right now is what they are called to in their life. So even if it feels like in their eyes everything's going wrong, in God's eyes this suffering is, is probably an indicator that everything is going right. So question... We've seen their calling. We know from the text that it is a calling. 
Is this calling just to servants or to slaves? Or is it to all of us? So point two, be in your outline the calling of all Christians. I title the point like that because I think that this calling is broader than master-slave relationships. And I even think it's broader than just employee-employer relationships. But I do want to take a minute first to, to note the obvious connections that this calling has to boss-employee relationships that we have uh, today, how we live. So in a society today where we can go job shopping whenever we want, when we get fed up with where we work, we're often tempted to have a bad attitude, a lazy attitude, uh, gossip about our boss, because we know that we can run our options, right? We kind of have this impression, yeah, the boss is there because somebody's got to get paid the big bucks and run the show, but really, like, I'm above him. Like, I'm watching him, and I can run my options. If I get fed up with him, I'll just go and get a different job. That's how we live in the first century. We're tempted to gossip, like I said, and if our superior ever dares to cross us, we'll show him. We'll call in sick, we'll go and get a different job, we'll quit with no notice. So we better watch how he treats us because we'll get him back. We'll slack or, or something else. What I'm not saying is that there's never times to use the human resources department. I'm not saying that if you or your coworkers are being abused or treated unfairly that you shouldn't take advantage of the resources we have today. I'm not saying that if you're miserable where you are that you shouldn't go and get another job. I'm not saying those things, but here's what I do want to challenge. How often are we at work and our boss speaks sharply to us or does something unfair to us? And that's going to happen whatever job you hop to, sorry, except if you work at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, Just a clarifier. How often when that happens do we feel the need or the idol or the craving to be treated fairly or to be respected and it just comes up like boiling water, the self-seeking idol of, I will be treated right. I will not let you think that you have actual power over me. I will get the last laugh here. How often does that boil up out of us? And how often if we were more like Jesus, and how often if we were living like Peter calls us to live here, when that urge came up, would we just breathe and think, Lord, you are my ultimate master. It is not mine to be treated right right now. How often, if we were living like Jesus, would we just accept that this is our calling? It's not an accident. It's not something that you can't do that to me. I'm a Christian. I'm a good worker. I'm a good Westerner who works a good paying job. It's not that. It's a calling. Shouldn't we realize I'm right where my feet should be? I'm being treated unfairly, and I'm right where God has called me to be. And just entrust it to the Lord. And we're going to look at entrusting it to the Lord later. Accept that it's our calling to be treated unfairly. Or, or maybe your coworkers give you a hard time because they're slacking and you're not slacking because you've got a good Christian work ethic. And so they're, they're ragging on you, you know, like they're, they're bullying you because you're making them all look bad, right? How often are we tempted also maybe to ride the waves of laziness because we know we can get away with it? If you do that, if you do either of those things, is God your true master? As Peter's calling us to acknowledge? Or are your own passions, your own self, your own need for respect. Is that your true master? So there's some things here for sure that connect to the modern workplace, but I think, like I said, the calling is broader than that. I think it goes beyond that. And the reason I think this is because the example that Peter's going to give us, and we'll get to in a minute, the example of Jesus' suffering unjustly when he didn't deserve it, even that example is not an example of a master-slave relationship or even a boss-employee relationship, right? Like, Jesus was not Pontius' slave. Jesus did not work for Caiaphas. 
But that's the example that Peter uses. And so it's an example of unjust suffering and endurance. But even in that example, it wasn't lived out in the workplace. It wasn't lived out with people who had authority over Jesus. Or later in verse, verse 9 of chapter 3, after summing this all up, Peter will say, finally, all of you, not just servants, not just slaves, finally, all of you, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. So he takes these principles here of unjust suffering and not returning evil for it, and he spreads them out to all Christians in all situations. And so, even in the same letter, Peter does that. Uh, so then, whenever you suffer unjustly for doing what is righteous, not just randomly or not just for doing evil, right? Not working your way into it with sin. But we can say from the text, whenever you suffer unjustly for doing what is righteous, you are in the calling of God. To this you were called. In work relationships, most prominently, but, but even outside of work relationships, and the example of Jesus helps us out there. So let's give some examples here. Maybe you're faithfully doing what the Lord calls you to do, and people make up silly lies about you. Don't think that's so unfair. Think calling, calling. This is what I was called to. Lord, I'm where you said I, was, I should be. Maybe you blow the whistle on a corrupt organization to help people who are being taken advantage of. That's something that I think you could justify with scripture. I mean, Isaiah says, help those who stumble to death. So things like that, that could cost you something to blow the whistle. Probably will cost you something. You'll probably suffer. Calling. That's your calling. Maybe your family mistreats you because of your faith. Calling. Maybe one day the government comes for our necks because we believe in Jesus and we do what he says. Calling. Maybe you're a Christian who follows Jesus in Nigeria or in the Middle East and the terrorists came and your pastor's dead and you're in jail. Calling. Maybe you belong to a church who doesn't apologize for the word of God and people who were once your friends don't come around as often anymore and they say things that aren't true about you or they think things that aren't true about you and your brothers and your sisters and Jesus. Calling. To this you were called. So that's our calling. And this calling is a challenge to two kinds of people. One, it's a challenge to the self-seeking as we've seen, we don't seek our own agenda. We seek to do what's right in a quiet, submissive, exile fashion. So people who are self-seeking, this is going to be hard for them. They're going to want to get their way. They're going to want to get their last word. They're going to want to vindicate themselves. The second group of people who this calling is hard for is cowards. So there are right things that you are called to do that will bring you suffering. And some of us might think when we're avoiding those things and we're not really stirring the pot where God calls us to, we might think we're living meek and mild, quiet, lowly Jesus Christian lives. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes I, I, want, I want to offer to you the idea that sometimes we're doing that out of cowardice because we're actually afraid of the results that will come if we do what's good, the good that will bring us suffering. And so it can be a challenge to the self-seeking and to cowards. And cowardice really is just a form of self-seeking, right? I seek my own security, my own safety, my own uh, not, not suffering. And out of self-seeking, I, I fail to do what is good, the good that will bring unjust suffering. So we shouldn't bring on suffering when we don't need to, but we also shouldn't fear it when it has to come because of what Jesus said.
We were destined for unjust suffering on this earth while doing right. And to try and escape that suffering is to try to escape Christianity. So why would God line it up that way? Why is this our calling? Well, let's look at verse 21 again. And in verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. There's so much packed into that verse, or in that word there, uh, Christ also suffered for you. And that comes out in verse 24 and 25, and that's going to be preached on next week. But, but this week we're going to look on, suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You could unpack a load of truth there, or you could just simply say we're called to this because we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to walk after Jesus, who suffered immensely. So let's look at Jesus' example. Starting in verse 22 in your outlines now, the example. How did Jesus suffer unjustly? How do we get our example from Jesus? What did he do? 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus suffered, he didn't suffer for sinning. He committed no sin. 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. They said awful things about Jesus. They said things about Jesus that missed the mark so much that were so untrue that you would have to not be living in reality. You would have to be out of your mind to believe the things that they said about Jesus. They called him a demon. They called him a liar. They reviled him by calling him a fool. The God of heaven accused of being a devil of hell. The only wise God who hung the stars like they were chandeliers and fashioned the mouths of the Pharisees who were reviling him called a fool. The one who is the truth itself incarnate in a body called a liar. They said crazy things about Jesus. At his trial, he could have exposed every dirty little secret that, that, that Caiaphas had ever kept his whole life. He could have exposed every dirty secret of all, the, all of the priests there, everybody who had ever reviled or accused him. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus is suffering, the most unjust suffering ever. If you took all of the injustice and all of the suffering that will ever happen in history and that has ever happened in history since Adam until the last trumpet, Jesus' suffering unjustly accounts for more of that. And he didn't threaten. What crime did he commit? How did Jesus offend? Jesus healed the deaf. Jesus made the blind to see. Jesus made the lame to run. Jesus committed no injury and his death was so unjust and he hung there like a petty criminal. Suffering. And he would have been justified to climb off that cross, call on 12 legions of angels and wipe them out like they were just ants. He would have been justified. Revelation 16 says that one day the rulers of the earth will be so terrified at Jesus when he comes back that they will beg for mountains to fall on them and hide them so they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus could have brought that day then at Golgotha. He could have at least threatened. Do you soldiers know who you're crucifying? Do you know the wrath that waits for you, Pontius? He could have at least threatened. But when he suffered, he did not threaten. Thousands of years of answering evil for evil... People giving evil for evil, answering one another with evil. People getting even with one another since Adam. Evil returned for evil, returned for evil. 
until Jesus comes. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten. He returned evil for mercy. He did not do evil or revile or threaten. So Jesus is our example. He didn't, re- he didn't, he didn't run from evil, or sorry, he didn't return evil for evil. He didn't try and justify himself, though he could have. The, the logic circles, he could have danced around them. And you get glimpses of that in the Gospels, but he, he could have went way harder on them than he did. He didn't try and justify himself or show how wrong his accusers were. He didn't avoid terrible suffering because he knew that in the suffering was obedience to the Father. He knew that it was necessary to do the Father's will, and in that he lived quietly, peacefully, humbly, submissible. He fulfilled God's will on earth for him and embraced the suffering that came with it. And where did Jesus look in order to do all that? What stopped him from wiping them all out like ants? What stopped him from showing how right he was? What stopped him from avoiding suffering? He didn't have to go through all that suffering, so what motivated him to endure? The last phrase of verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus knew that he had glory before him. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus knew that justice was coming for those who crucified him, and he trusted God for his glory and for the justice of those who, who made him suffer. So when you read, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, don't just think, well, the judgment of the ones who made him suffer, they're going to they're gonna get hell. Think also that God justly judged to set Jesus above all rulers and powers and authorities and principalities and give him the name that was above every name, right? That's a judgment of God too. So Jesus was trusting God for the justice that would come on his enemies if they did not repent. Otherwise, that justice would be met on the cross. And he was trusting God for the glory and joy that he would receive. That impulse in us that boils up, that impulse in us that says, this isn't right. I need to fix this. I need to set things straight here. That impulse isn't all bad. We can't make it into an idol, though often we do. And usually when we feel that impulse, uh, it's so tainted by sin that we shouldn't run with it. In fact, almost never. But since we're made in the image of God, we have a godly impulse in us for justice. Jesus felt that impulse purely, and he trusted God to meet that impulse on the last day. So we desire for things to be made right. So what do you do with that part of yourself? If you've put away the pride, if you've put away the self-seeking and the idol of respect and for fair treatment, if you've put those away and there's still that longing left for justice, for you, for others... A pure one. What do you do with it? Well, there's going to be some examples where where God actually does call you to do something with it, right? There's going to be actions he calls us to take. But either in inactivity, when we're called to do nothing and submit, or when we're called to do something and suffer for it. In both cases, when, when, when everything's broken down, we have that pure longing for justice left. We entrust to the one who judges justly. The judge of the earth will do right. Genesis 50. So that's all of the verses that we have time to deal with this morning. So let's recap in five points here, and then we'll apply. One, we're called to submit to those who are in authority over us. 
Bosses, government, police, other examples were called to do this out of the fear of God, who is the actual authority over us. Two, there will be times where we can't do this and submit to King Jesus, and we have to pick King Jesus. And that's going to cause us to suffer. Three, we will suffer for what's doing, for doing what's right. We will suffer for doing what's right in ways that go beyond authority relationships, which we've already looked at a few. We will simply suffer for doing what is right. And this suffering is not an accident. It is a calling. Four, if we, my fingers aren't very flexible no more. Four, if we endure this, and keep on doing good, and do not return evil for evil, God, your Father in heaven, who sees you in secret, will reward you. Five, Jesus is our example in this, through the cross, and he shows us to, dr- to trust God for our justice instead of trying to claim it ourselves. So, so five truths that we could boil down from that text. Those are heavy truths. I mean, like, they're not very heavy maybe sitting in a chair listening to me say them on Sunday, but when, when you come up against that unjust suffering, that's going to be a heavy truth. If ever Canada is not as safe for Christians as it is now, that's going to be a heavy truth. These are heavy truths, and I just want to take a moment to apply these truths in three short ways, and then we'll be done. So in your outlines application, first point, following in Jesus' steps. Peter said in verse 21 that Christ left us this example to follow in his steps. And I really want to drive this point home that we're to follow in Jesus' steps. Uh, Christians are to walk in Jesus' steps. But I think at lots of times uh, we have a truncated view or a naive view or or a small view of what it actually means to follow in Jesus' steps. Many of you might be familiar with a book called In His Steps. Right? And it popularized the question, what would Jesus do? Right, And so a lot of people have those bracelets. WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's not all bad. The book's not all bad. I was helped by the book. Um, and that question's a good question. But what I think that did to the phrase in his steps or to the phrase what would Jesus do, what I think that caused us to think is that following in Jesus' steps, walking in his steps is a list of moral questions. I think it conditioned us to think that Walking in his steps, doing what Jesus would do, is always a this or that, right? Um, This choice or that choice. Living life like following Jesus is just an idle series of choices, A or B. And I think we've seen today that walking in his steps is not just a series of this or that, but it's a way of life, and it's a way of life marked by suffering. It's marked by a cross where our pride and our will and our reputation will go to die. It's marked by having injustice as our portion time and time and time again while we trust God. It's marked by a life of being well acquainted with sorrows and full of grief. If any man would follow me, if any man would walk in my steps, let him pick up his cross and follow me. Walking in his steps together means walking as a sad, quiet, meek, misunderstood, lowly band of saints, a group of people who by their life declare, our God is the great sufferer. Walking in Jesus' steps is suffering, and this is our calling. 
The word for calling in our passage I did not mention before is the same word that Peter's been using for the word elect. So we were elect and chosen before the foundation of the world for suffering because before the foundation of the world we were united to the one who is the great sufferer. It can't be any other way. If you're born again, that's your nature. Let me put it to you this way. If a dog has a, has a baby, it's a dog. If an eagle lays an egg and it hatches, it's an eagle. If the great sufferer Jesus gives new birth to somebody, they're born again as a sufferer. It's our nature. It can't be any other way. This is our fate. So, so if you have to ask, what would Jesus do? Don't rule out suffering probably comes into the equation a lot more than we think or than we'd like. Walking in Jesus' steps comes with a cross and an ocean of tears. Next point. Suffering still hurts. When I say that we need to embrace suffering, I don't want to just give the impression that we stiffen up our lip and we just get over it and we play tough, and we're apathetic. Suffering still hurts. Suffering is hard, and it was hard for Jesus. It's going to be hard for us. I mean, think of Jesus before his greatest suffering in the garden, praying to the Father, Father, take this cup away from me. Jesus did not want the suffering. The suffering hurt Jesus. There's times in the gospel where where, where Jesus wept, right? Or, Or think of, I referred earlier to Hebrews 12, 2, where Jesus got glory for enduring the cross, but what else does it say in Hebrews 12, 2? He endured the cross despising, hating the shame. Jesus hated suffering. Okay, it's not wrong to collapse on God when the suffering gets too much. It's not wrong to hate the suffering. Embracing suffering doesn't mean being indifferent. Embracing suffering with Jesus might look like tears and prayers. Embracing suffering with Jesus might look like, Father, would you please take this away from me? And even if you don't, Lord... Not my will, but yours. So, so Jesus hated his suffering. Don't love the suffering. You're allowed to hate it. But you're called to love the God of the suffering enough to endure the suffering. Suffering still hurts. Last point. Jesus' suffering brings Jesus' glory. Uh, I want to use this last point, Emmanuel Baptist Church, to encourage you in maybe a more personal way. I'm preaching to a group of people who have tasted suffering for doing what is good. The last few years have left some of us as hurting people. I'm preaching to a group of people who, because they were not ashamed of God's word, have lost friends and family and reputation, and your obedience has left you at times with deep wounds, and we've walked through that together. And I know that that can sting like hell. You're suffering with the very suffering of Jesus. Guys, your suffering is not useless. You're suffering with the suffering of your Lord. So let it bring you closer to him as you bear his wounds. And if we suffer with him, we must also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12 So I want to encourage you. I want you to know. I want you to believe that your day is coming. The day is coming and it burns like a fire in the oven. It's barreling over the horizon. The day where those who thought you were fools will see that you are the very sons and daughters of the living God. They will see that you are God's chosen, God's elect. 
God's people. And as you endure, your heavenly Father, he sees it, and he will judge justly also to reward you for it. None of your suffering and righteousness will be missed. Trust the one who judges justly. God counted every drop of blood on the cross and rewarded Jesus for it, fittingly. God will count every single one of your tears and store it up and keep them counted and keep a record and reward you for that with glory and honor and praise. He'll answer for all of it with those things when Jesus comes back. Bottles and bottles and oceans and oceans of tears will be answered for when he judges justly. If you endure, this night will only last a little while, but your glory is on the horizon. Your glory is coming in the morning, so pick up the cross, walk in his steps, and I promise that when he comes on the clouds, we'll be really, really happy that we pulled through together. I wonder if when Jesus comes back and the the Jesus who we've preached and believed and proclaimed as the great sufferer for years and years and years, Christ crucified, I wonder if when we see him in his glory, all of us together will look at him and say, Jesus, you don't look like a sufferer anymore. And maybe then we'll look at our feet and we'll look around and we'll say, neither do we. Let's pray. Father, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And God, part of loving you is suffering like Jesus. And so, God, you have great things prepared for us. Help our hearts to see them. Help our hearts to believe them from your word, from the lips of one another, from from the embrace and the reassuring of the Holy Spirit. God, you've given us a path and a cross and your word. And Lord, we we confess this morning it's enough. It's enough for us to follow. And we want to do that, Lord. Help us to follow. God, it'll be so hard. Give us the faith of our elder brother, Jesus, who endured the suffering, yes, despising the shame, but had glory set before him. And if that's where he went, where his siblings, God, where else can we go? We've got to go with him. If we go with him in his suffering, bring us with him in his glory, God. And with that glory, not dwelling on the suffering, Lord, but in mind of glory, in mind of the praise and the glory and the honor we'll receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ, help us to endure. Lord, in our work, in our relationships, in our life, God, help us. We can't do it without you, God. We are needy and we need you to help us. If you don't, Lord, this thing that you have called us to do will not be done. So help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.